Happy 4th of July. Welcome to Paperback Readers. Hope everybody's enjoying the good, I would say holiday weekend, but you're uh, probably back to the week by the time you hear this, but I hope it was a good weekend. I hope you've uh, been reading some good stuff. We sure have. Yeah, it's been really, really fun these two weeks, and honestly, the book that we're going to talk about together, um, our disagreements on it were just as much fun to talk about as the things we agreed on. I'll buy that, sure. Why not? Well, why don't you start us out this time around? Uh, what, what have you worked on in these last, like, 10 days since we did this? The first one is called The One Thing You'd Save by Linda Sue Park, and I think you read this too and didn't count it. I did. You're yeah. correct. Oh, there you go. Ding, ding, ding. Extra <laughs> one for me. This was more of a children's book, and it was super, super sweet. It was almost written in verse, and it was a teacher who had asked her students to consider what would they save if their house was in a fire, you know, that age-old question, your family's all safe, what thing would you save? And um, it was a really, really sweet, cool little book, great illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, we read it, and then we gave it to our daughter, and she read it, too. And um, it made us all kind of try to think about what it is that we would save. Yeah, it, it was a really cool premise. I don't remember at the end the author says there, there's an unusual form she's using in her yeah, poetic construction. I, don't I can't either. recollect what it is, but... She just kind of drops it in at the end, but I wasn't even thinking about that just because the stories she told and the way she told them mm-hmm. were really, you know, sometimes poignant, sometimes funny. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's a good kid book, but uh, as is the case with many of the best of those, it got, cuts a little deeper too. It's a good book to read with your kids and talk about. It's really fun. Sure. All right. I read Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner. This was a fabulous book. I read you pieces of this too. Mm-hmm. The, it's really a series of essays um, centered around her mom's death. She tells the story of um, the last days and months of her mom's life as her mom passes away from cancer and the conflict for her on many levels, first of all, because she's losing her mom, but also because um, her dad is American, her mom is Korean, and she's very concerned about losing that Korean side of her heritage and trying to hang on to that. Mm-hmm. My favorite essay in the whole book was the first one. That's also the title essay, Crying in H Mart. That was fabulous. But she did a really good job with the rest of this book, too. The author is a musician, and she writes. Um, she writes. You can tell she's a lyricist by the way that she writes. They're really, really beautiful. It made me want to check out her music. Their images were very, Mm -hmm. very clean and crisp, very musical. I don't know. And sometimes a book like this can just really drag you down um, and just make you feel miserable. And I'm not saying that. Sometimes you need to feel miserable, you know. Um, But I lost my grandfather in January. And um, reading this book, I felt, even though it was, of course, very, very sad, was more comforting. It was a way to relate and connect and to think about the things that I also am taking from my own heritage. So, well, I mean, that's that's what we all do, isn't it? We we try to look into the past and and draw lessons that we can use in the present and the future, which is an interesting segue that we'll circle back to here <laughs> in a few minutes. Anyway, this was a great book. Um, I read The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley, <laughs> which is just a great title for a book. It really is. It stands for Gay Uncle. I kind of hoped it was going to be like a monster that lived under a bridge or something. <laughs> I mean, it sounded great. But. Well, it makes me think of the t-shirt that your sister got you um, when they adopted their daughter and yes. yours said Funkle on it. It's yeah. Like fun Uncle. That's true. Anyway, in this book, the main character's um, sister-in-law has passed away after a long illness Um, right after she passes away, his brother reveals that 
during the loss of his wife, he has become addicted to pain pills. He needs to go to rehab. These two children, um, somebody needs to take care of, and he wants this gunkle to take care of them. He has not had a lot to do with these kids, and he also is grieving his sister-in-law, who at one time was his very best friend. She became his brother's wife um, by meeting his brother through him because they were best friends in college. They were roommates after college. He also loved these kids' mother very much. And over the course of the book, this guy who was a, um, a big-time actor who lives in California and has kind of secluded himself from the rest of the world after the loss of his longtime partner, um, learned how to mourn the loss of somebody you love well and then how to open your heart to more love. It was just such a heartwarming, sweet book. I loved this book. It was funny. It was um, kind. It was healing. Five stars. It was great. Well, and the parts that you read me, I haven't said this to you, but but in my head, as I often think about when there's a book that I read or that you read me selections of, I think when the inevitable movie of this is made, Rupert Everett has this part, right? That, that is Rupert Everett. Are you feeling that? Uh, he's too old. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's Hollywood. They can do stuff. I don't know. Nah, he's too old now. Um, and I think well, in my yeah, in our lives, he would have been the right <laughs> age. That, that's a tribute to my age, not his, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I just, I really, really loved him, and I loved the, um, I loved the way that he became this guy who was, you know, a no kids. This is an intrusion into my life. Who turned into a guy who was like, these kids have lost their mom. Their dad's having problems. I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to make sure these kids have a future. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and um, he makes sure he stays in their lives. I just, seriously, I loved it. It was um, beautiful all the way through. So That's awesome. Okay. Last thing I read, except for our shared book, is The Anthropocene Project. Oh, my gosh. Did I say it right? We've looked it up. I think so. Okay. It's by John Green. I love John Green. He wrote The Fault in Our Stars. I actually got you to watch the movie with me. Yeah, I read the book, too. Oh, I didn't remember that you yeah, did that. It was I read a great the book, book first, yeah. Um, he wrote Turtles All the Way Down, which I... I didn't read that, yeah. Mm, I loved that book. That was a really, really great one that grappled with mental illness. I feel like you read me parts of that, maybe. Um, what's another one of his that I really, really loved? Um, there was a book that was about... It was, oh, it was about a bunch of Catherines. Anyway, <laughs> if you read young adult literature, you have heard of John Green. If you don't read young adult literature, you've heard of John he's a Green. Big deal, he's yeah. fabulous. He's a vlogger. He does a YouTube channel with his brother. He does a podcast. He's just, he writes really, really smart literature with characters who are very, very real. Um, I, I love every second of what I read of his books. And I love like trying to figure out all the references and allusions that he's putting in and how these are affecting his writing. This is different because Mm -hmm. it's a book of essays. It's a book of essays. Um, And he mentions in the introduction to this book of essays that, um, you know, writing about fiction when everybody assumes that you are the same as all of your characters, he's tired of hiding. And one of the things I loved about this was its vulnerability. Um, basically the Anthropocene is the age that we're living in, right? I, I thought it was like the critic. I thought that was... No, you're right. No, you're right. It's the you're age right. that we're living yeah, in. Yeah, he did go in. And um, what he does is he takes a bunch of things from modern life, everything from Mario Kart to... Um, 
Oh gosh, what's one of the ones I read you today? His band that he liked. I oh remember yeah, you that said. we listened to some of them today. They had yeah. a weird name. Yeah, they did, and I'm totally blanking. Me too. On it. Anyway, he takes all these kinds of things. He writes a short essay about them, and then he reviews. He, he rates them. He Piggly gives them Wiggly. A star I rating. Piggly that Wiggly one. was yeah. one of them. So um, it's really, really, really good. If you like John Green, you would probably like this, and I really like the extra vulnerability in it. Um, we'll talk more about this later. Mm-hmm. What have you been reading, Joe? I've not been as productive, surprise, surprise, because it's summer and you read. You have things to do. You know, like, uh, I don't know, like the river flows. You just read and read. Um, I did read the the book that you mentioned. Um, Now I'm blanking on the title and you just. We already talked about it. The one, uh, the things you'd save. Yeah, yeah, which which was a lot of fun, but you. Why can we not remember anything anymore? Age. (laughs) Harsh, but true. Okay, so one of the quests I've had here, other than the presidential quest, which I'm still bogged down deep in John Quincy Adams, but we'll revisit that, has been to find the single source book about baseball's Negro Leagues, and I think I finally did. Only the Ball Was White by Robert Peterson. Uh, Peterson's book, I'm going to look and see what year it's from. It's older. It's not new. It's 1970. Uh, But in terms of a... One volume, short, readable history of the Negro Leagues and a handful of the really outstanding players and personalities. This is it. Uh, I've read three or four others that I've talked about, and they've always been, it's good, but I don't really have a but here. Um, I think he covered everything that there was to cover. He did it pretty quickly, uh, pretty easy to read book. And then you get a chapter on Satchel Paige, and you get a chapter on Josh Gibson, uh, Rube Foster. You know, the, again, the handful of, of dominant players and personalities. And I thought it was really cool. And this is the one part of the book that undoubtedly has aged. The back, he's got a massive appendix where he has standings and stats, uh, such as they were from the Negro Leagues. Uh, and of course, that stuff's more available now. That's the one part you really could update. Uh, and I thought it was really beautiful. He, he wrote this outstanding history, very very historical, very removed. And at the end, he's got an epilogue and he says, now I want to put down the, the researchers, you know, disguise here and admit I care about this in one way. These guys should be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And of course they weren't at that time. And he has a little footnote which says, actually now the Hall of Fame has started this process and I'm very grateful. But he, over about three pages, he lays out why he felt that they should be in the Hall of Fame. And of course, history has very much vindicated everything he says. Uh, but Peterson, I don't know that he necessarily did this first, but at 1970, it was still fairly close to first. Some of these guys were still around, and we're down to the last handful of people who played in the Negro Leagues who are still alive. But then there was still a pretty good uh, chunk of the population of these guys, and even the few ladies who played. Uh, But his, his research is careful and thoughtful. His writing is brilliant. If you're looking for that one book, I think this is it. You have raved about this one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, it's an oldie bit of goodie. I, I did the dumb thing here where I started with newer stuff and <laughs> circled around and went, I'm not finding it, I'm not finding it, and then kind of went back to the source book and went, ah, yeah, this this is really good. <laughs> so anyway, uh, second one, Maltese Falcon, Dashiell Hammett. It is, of course, a classic detective novel, Sam Spade. Uh, there are some similarities with uh, Big Lebowski. It's got that same kind of some stuff happens, 
and you kind of process it, and then something insane happens, and you try to process it, and about the time you're starting to wrap your mind around it, something else crazy happens. I I don't want to go into too much depth on plot, but it is a very, very plot-heavy detective novel. You love the classic detective novel. That's why you are so into the Cormoran Strike books. Yeah, completely, completely. Who doesn't like a good whodunit or howdunit or... Honestly, in this case, as much as anything, a what done it. I mean, you, you really spend the whole novel being like, what happened? Where, you're basically just dropped in the middle. Well, but what you're just saying now could describe almost any kind of mystery or thriller that is out right now. What you like is the kind that is led by that classic detective. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the key. He, he's the guy, yeah. I mean, to, to again, circle back to Big Lebowski, sometimes there's a man for his times. And yeah. Obviously, that would be uh, Sam Spade. Uh, he's the classic gumshoe that uh, you think of if you read gritty American mystery and detective <laughs> stuff. So, you know, it, it was a reread. I've read it before, but it's a, it's a fun one. And coming off the Shakespearean Lebowski, I thought <laughs> I'd uh, kind of left-handedly go to another genre brother of it and did. All right. Um, okay, let's talk about our shared book. Sure. It is called Land of Lincoln, um, Travels with Abe. Is that what it is? I don't know. Don't, don't have it here. Don't okay. have the subtitle. Um, anyway, the and it's room. by Andrew Ferguson. Yeah. This was your pick, Joe, so you tell us what it is about. Well, I had read this book some time ago, but it seemed like a natural continuation of our, our Bill Bryson-y, travel-y kind of thing. Uh, because Ferguson, a large part of the book, goes around to these various Lincoln sites. If you said what's the book about, it's really about history and mythology and the business of history and mythology and what we in America do with our heroes and our attempts to educate people about them. And so it's one of these books, as I try to tell you what it's about, I can't really tell you in 20 words or less. No, you really couldn't because you described this to me and I was like, okay, we'll read this. But it was it was really not what I expected it to be. Yeah, and, and sometimes even chapter to chapter, Ferguson's a journalist and, and he comes at it with kind of a, a hard-boiled detectives, uh, or detectives, and I'm, I'm still <laughs> on that, hard-boiled journalist sensibilities, which really isn't much different than a hard-boiled detective. Yeah. They see the world. Uh, you know, through fairly cynical glasses and uh, mm-hmm. obviously with good reason in the course of this story. Uh, you, you see, you know, Lincoln is one of those things, and I said this in my book, A Fine Team Man, because I was writing about Jackie Robinson, who has grown to be almost as ubiquitous. You have to be careful because everybody wants to put their spin on Lincoln or on Robinson now, and that's the person telling the story suddenly the hero seems to have a lot in common with him or her. Um, well, and he's a journalist, as he writes this, but he's also a Lincoln buff. Yeah. He visited all the sites when he was a kid. He cares intensely about Lincoln. He has his own defined idea of who Lincoln was. And in part, I chose this book because about chapter eight in this book, I went, oh, that's why I chose it, because he's <laughs> me. Because I've, I've actually been to all the Lincoln sites. I didn't well, set out to do it, but it just kind of happened. You know, my, my dad uh, is, is, was a teacher, and so growing up, you know, I've, I've heard him make light of this. We, uh, we would spend the summers, as he would say, going around to various dead people's houses because essentially that's it. Historical tourism was kind of our thing. 
my dad once had a letter published in, I believe it was U.S. News, in which he pointed out that for the cost of a family vacation for four to Disney, you could get an associate's degree at the community college he taught at. Okay, well, my dad was a teacher too, but we did. But go he to wanted Disney, to go to Disney, and yeah. we went to the beach. Yeah, not, we did not, not only, go to dead people's houses. Not only did my dad not want to go to Disney, <laughs> he wrote a letter to try to persuade other people we, not to go. We to did Disney. Disney, and we did the beach. So, like, yeah. there are some of the Lincoln sites that were here in Kentucky. Those I am fairly familiar with, um, but the other ones, not so much. So. Had you been to the birth cabin and all that before you and I were married? <laughs> Before the like ten times you've taken me there, no, I don't think well, I. Have. In, in my defense, it, it is like it might be a hundred miles from here. It might be a little bit less. So. No, I, I don't think that I had. I think you were the first person that I had known who wanted to go see it. <laughs> um, I'm making light of this, uh, but it, it's really interesting, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, chapter eight is where I first started to really, really like this book too. I was kind of back and forth. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, not that it wasn't interesting. He's a great author. This is well-researched. It was very interesting. Um, but I felt like the tone of the book was like making fun of people a lot of the time. He's a little flippant. Who, For whom Lincoln and the things that they believed about Lincoln were of great importance. Um, but then he got to about chapter 8 and he made fun of himself in exactly the same way. And so <laughs> then it was... It was. It made me feel a little better about the whole thing. So, yeah, I totally identify with him there because I think possibly my favorite part of the whole book <laughs> is they, they're in Springfield and he's shown them. I think he said he, his, he counted this like... This is him taking his family. Yeah, his, his wife and his two kids who are around the same age as our kids. I think maybe a little bit maybe. older, but not much. Um and he said after he'd showed them like the third straight place, which is like, now this is a parking lot. But back in 1852, <laughs> it was so-and-so's tavern. You know, after about the third time, his daughter like walks over to a brick wall and is like, this wall here, actually, Abe Lincoln <laughs> used to stand and lean on it as he pondered saving children from burning buildings. You know, and well, I've been there. <laughs> and you and I obviously had totally different approaches to this stuff. Who can forget the time that... Um, we were driving to Holiday World in Santa Claus, Indiana, which notably has a Lincoln site that is discussed in the book. Oh, sure. I spent my childhood going to Holiday World. We went almost every year growing up, and I was very excited to take you and to take our kids. And you made a stop at the Lincoln site before we could go ride the roller coasters, and I was so angry. So we came to all of this from very different places, but I really appreciated this book. As Ferguson says... We all have our own Lincoln. I had my impressions of Lincoln, too. My, um, the way I thought about Lincoln and the things that I care about with Lincoln is, like, uh, it's all based around trying to see who he is as a human being. Mm-hmm. Not really as an icon, not so much as this national hero, but who is he as a human being? I think that's why he matters. And who he is as a human being um, affects all the other things that he was, he was able to do, both great and small, his sure. successes and his failures. And so it was really interesting and at times just kind of mind-blowing to see the lengths to which people will go to make Lincoln like them. Oh, very much. And he opens the book with a discussion in the city of Richmond uh, was building a statue of Lincoln. And as you can imagine, that was controversial in the heart of Old Dixie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, Richmond is, you know, Virginia is a blue state now. Richmond's a very progressive city now. So he felt like in, in some ways he brought it in as a dilemma kind of between P- 
people who were, they wanted to make Lincoln so upright and so forward-thinking that he almost lost reality versus people who, who you know, have a strong Confederate allegiance that they wanted to carry into their thoughts on Lincoln, and those tended to be slanted bizarrely in the other direction. But the more... Yeah, you almost from the first chapter got a little bit of vertigo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, he's over here. No, no, no. He's actually over here. And, and he wasn't in any of those places, or was in all of them, maybe. Uh, but yeah, he, he grounded it pretty well right there. But I, I think the, the best example he gives of the shamelessness that people will, will tie to this, he talks about a couple who do business seminars, <laughs> and they, they're basically holding Lincoln up as an example of, of business strategy. Despite the fact that he couldn't keep a business going, pretty much? No, he was a <laughs> failure as a businessman. He, you know, again, at one point he says, who in the world would, would uh, advise any business person to not cash their checks and to keep all their important documents in their hat? Uh, you know, not, not really uh, the way it should go. And yet... They would mine the, the vein of Lincoln's life for examples to, to teach people sound business strategy, <laughs> which is definitely a little perverse. Well, I really enjoyed the travel in this book. He went to all of these different sites, mm-hmm. talked to people at all of these different places, um, some from his childhood, some things that he remembered, and then some, we went to, from everything to this business seminar to um, a Lincoln impersonators conference. Yeah. Um, and I, we always see the guy at the Kentucky State Fair. Oh I can't gosh, remember his yeah. name, but he's always there. I, so I we thought of him when Lincoln I read that. We love Lincoln Anyway, um, so he, he went to all these places, and then he talked about both impressions that he had had from his childhood and impressions now. He also talked about um, history as objectively as he could find it to lay it out. And for me, I think the best parts of the book were... Um, his own impressions of Lincoln based on history as he understands it. Mm-hmm. It's a really good book. If you are, like Joe, really into presidential things, um, maybe you also visited a lot of sites as a child, you would really, really enjoy this book. Um, and you also, if you have never visited any of those sites, let me just say all the ones I've seen are worthwhile. Don't die. Don't I'm have a sorry, heart attack. I'm sorry. That sound of silence was yeah, my untimely demise captured for posterity on the podcast. Um, no, I I, uh, I enjoyed the book. There are, there are so many good Lincoln books. Obviously, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book uh, is a team of rivals is one that I hold particularly dear. Um, I encourage anybody. You, you can always read that. But this is a more fun uh, look at. The rebranding really and reconfiguring of Lincoln. Um, there's another one, and I'm I can't remember the the author. It's a female author, I believe. The book's called Dead Presidents, where she kind of went around and did the same thing, traveling to the final resting places of many presidents. Oh, wow. And it was wonderfully morbid and, and dark <laughs> and, and spooky, funny at the same time uh, throughout. That was another one that, that this book kind of reminds me of. In oh spots. my gosh, that reminds me. Another thing I really loved in this book was his discussion of all the Lincoln relics that people keep. Mm-hmm. Whew. You guys should read it just for the Lincoln relics. That was pretty cool. Well, I mean, it's funny that he compares it at one point to the you know iconography that the Catholic Church has. The, right. the, the relics associated with saints have class statuses based on how closely affiliated with the saint they are. And he says Lincolnia is not much different. No, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, on that uh, august note, <laughs> hope wherever you're going and whatever you're up to that you're having a good holiday and reading lots of good stuff. We hope that you'll join us in two weeks when we come back here to catch you up on everything that we've been reading again and discuss our next book. Yes. Which will be uh, The Anthropocene Project by John Green that I mentioned earlier. Probably made a hash of discussing because I was trying to hold back as much as I could <laughs> for after you have finished it and we're able to talk about it next week. It's a fabulous book. If you have read it, want to read it, have any thoughts about it or any of the books or topics we have discussed today, please let us know. The email is paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com. You can always get in touch with us on Instagram at paperbackreaderspod or on Twitter at pbackreaderspod. And we actually have some postings on Twitter now. So, Well, what can I say? <laughs> I was inspired. But anyway. We're I'm really not giving you our time. I was, I was, that was a good thing. I was, I was glad. <laughs> anyway, wherever you're you're listening, thanks for listening. Hope you're having a good summer. And goodness sake, keep reading. Uh-huh.